the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Them for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about church, questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is to call us, and to do that, you can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, I remind you every day, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, tonight, as usual on Monday, we have our men's and women's uh, Bible studies. Also, the, the high schoolers and junior high schoolers will be here at the same time, so you can make it a family thing. Paula will be teaching uh, the ladies. She's, they're in Philippians, and Paula's going to be talking about her best thing, her her encouragement gift. So uh, that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You can watch that at calvarysa.com. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. And uh, as I said, Pastor Matthew and Pastor Chris will be teaching the youth age people. Well, let's get to some calls and questions that have been sent in. We've got Victor on line one. Victor, thanks for calling early. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Um, uh-huh. I had a question on the... Uh, on the Jewish festivals, you know, there's seven of them. And um, when Christ was crucified uh, right on the festival of uh, atonement, and then he was buried, uh, the festival of, of uh, unleavened bread, and then he rose from the dead on the festival of first fruits. And then when the Holy Spirit came down on 50, 50 days later um, on the festival of Pentecost, mm-hmm. uh, is it plausible that even though we're not supposed to know the day or the hour, <laughs> that the next the next festival uh, in you know in order would be trumpet the festival of trumpets? Uh, I know it's a two day festival, so you know you can pick take a pick whichever year going forward. I know next year is the twenty sixth and twenty seventh of September. Is it plausible to think that it might happen? You know, I know it, it takes a, a, a millifraction of a second for the rapture to occur. And yeah. in the day, well, there's two days. I mean, I just want to know what your opinion is of that. What do you think? Is it plausible or is it, uh, is it wrong to even think that it might happen on any given year on that, on that festival since the first four occurred uh, right on those festivals? Uh, the first four, and I'll yeah, hang Victor, up. Yeah, uh, Okay, thank you, thank you, Victor. Um, it's not. It's. I don't think it's. It's um, 
unwise to 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 think about the fulfillment of the feast. Now, most people, Victor, uh, and I haven't really done any um, work on this because I, I I personally don't care when he comes. I just want him to come. Uh, but uh, it's possible, uh, and I think most people uh, who look from this perspective are thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, so we don't know when he's coming. I think the difficulty that we run into, Victor, is when we start thinking about a certain year it's going to come. Um, we know Jesus is coming soon. That doesn't mean soon in times of, of uh, in, in the sense of time frame. You know, we, like soon to me is in the next hour. Um, but soon to God is different. God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. Um, and I, I think we can really get into some trouble. And I say that advisedly, Victor, because I've had some good friends, pastors, including my pastor. Now, my pastor wasn't a good friend. He was just a, a, a my pastor, Pastor Chuck. Um, you know, at some point, this rabbit trail sort of snares people into coming up with dates. Um, um Pastor Chuck once said, I'm certain that the Lord is coming, and he gave a certain year. I think it was 1988, if I remember correctly. Uh, and I just think we ought to stay completely away from that. I think we ought to be content trusting the Lord um, and say, okay, Lord, you're going to come at just the right time. Jesus came the first time at just the right time. Now, we would think, well, you came too late. The Lord, the, Lord, the world was messed up. But, but the Bible says at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And at just the right time, Victor, Jesus will come back for his church. The great tribulation will begin, and we will, uh, we will be in heaven with Jesus for a seven-year period of time. But, but to follow your point, I do believe that when he comes back, it will be uh, on one of the festival days. Um, again, I haven't done a lot of research, but but it makes a lot of sense. And I personally think um, I would lean more toward uh, Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So good good question. Thank you. Um, because of Victor's question, let me just share. Um, I'm teaching now through the book of Revelation on Friday nights. And this past Friday, we began the Great Tribulation. Um, so if you are interested in... Uh, the Great Tribulation and the things that are going to happen. Uh, you can go to calvarysa.com. All of our stuff is free. You can access it easily. And you can listen to the verse-by-verse studies. Uh, I thought Friday Night Study was was an important one. It sort of kicks off the Great Tribulation. And, and you know, this book gets really, really wearisome because so many people die. We're only through five seals on Friday night, and already nearly two billion people in the world are dead. So uh, if you are interested, Victor, anybody else, you can go there. Uh, The rapture of the church, uh, the next event um, on the prophetic calendar, I think, is simple. Um, He's going to come when you think not. He's going to come at just the right time, and I think we need to be ready for that. So, Victor, thank you, and uh, you've called uh, a few times, so I know that your heart uh, longs to see the Lord, and and, uh, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Just too many people have compromised their ministries and damaged their credibility by trying to narrow it down to uh, a date. Uh, Jesus, in the flesh, in his incarnation, even Jesus didn't know. He knows now, of course. But even Jesus didn't know, in his incarnation, what day he would return for his church, nor what day he would return to the earth in judgment. Good questions. Thank you very, very much, Victor. Here is a question from Alex from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, my son goes to a church middle school group, and they play a lot of games and very little Bible study, about 15 minutes. Is that a normal thing, and am I being too picky and judgmental? I asked my son's youth pastor why the studies are not longer, at least 30 minutes, and he said the middle school uh, the middle schooler can't handle it. And then Alex asks, what do I do? Alex, you have hit a nerve with me. <laughs> you have hit a nerve. Uh, you know, Alex, uh, and, and I'm not trying to steal you from your church. That's, that's between you and the Lord. Uh, but we start teaching our children the Bible, just the Bible. We don't have programs. We don't play games. Um, um, we're, we're not there to entertain them. We're there to make disciples. And kids, when they're young especially, they're very, very 
easy to reach. And so we teach in the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, they, they do it according to their the, the age level and comprehension level of the kids. But uh, we don't make apologies. Our kids are not here to be entertained. And here's the thing, Alex. The kids that come here love coming. The fellowship is richer. Everything is better around the Word of God. And because churches have taken this approach, well, you know, middle schoolers can't handle it. Their attention spans are too short. Uh, All I can say is that their attention spans are going to stay short. And we have shortchanged the power of the Holy Spirit in church culture uh, because what God can do is grip these kids' hearts. And when he does, when he grips their heart, it changes them. In many cases, changes them forever. So, Alex, if 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 it was my son, and I went to a church that thought so little of my kids, that they played games on Sunday when we're supposed to be worshiping Jesus and learning about Jesus, I would find another church. That simple, cut and dry for me. Um, we found our kids are thriving, and because your son is a middle school group, uh, our junior high group here. Um, we had, oh, a year or so ago, a little mini revival um, among among the kids. And they just started getting excited about the, the, the Word. Uh, they were serving the Lord. They were participants in church uh, on Sundays when they came. Uh, they would come to one service to be taught, another service to serve. Uh, and And now those kids are older kids. And as they go into high school group, uh, we're finding that there's a lot of young men and women who really and truly do love Jesus. And we're preparing them, Alex, for a time when they're going to go away from home. They're going to go to university. And at university, their faith is going to be ripped from their hearts and from their minds, intentionally so. And we got to prepare them. I think what you've just described is the reason why there are so many surveys and so much money spent on trying to find out why are we losing an entire generation of kids when they go away to college? And the reason is we never had them in the first place. So whether you're five years old or in a toddler room, and Alex, we teach toddlers the Bible. Again, much differently than we do high schoolers and certainly much different than I do adults, but we go through the Bible. And they get it. And it's wonderful to watch. They will be prepared. And if they fall away when they go to college or when they go out in the world to work, it won't be our fault because they will have known the Word of God. So uh, this, as I said, you struck a nerve. I think you can tell that now. But what we have to do, Alex, is trust the power of the Holy Spirit to change these kids. And he does it just like he changes their moms and dads. So, Victor, thanks very, very much. I appreciate it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's an anonymous email today. Hi, Pastor Ron. I believe the Lord is wanting me to be a pastor. How did you know the Lord called you to be a pastor? He says, there are many pastors who are who are pastors and never called. Uh, many of them do well, too, and I don't know what you mean by that. Although I think they shouldn't be a pastor, but they say the Lord called them, I'm assuming, to be a pastor. Is Bible college advantageous for a new pastor? I've read that many pastors end up doing their master's and doctoral degrees in ministry or theology. Should a pastor continue to do more than an associate's or bachelor's degree? You know, um, Anonymous, this is a really hard question to answer. I, I, I went to Bible college. Uh, our Bible college was a three-year program, and, and at the beginning when I went in, they, they cut it down to two uh, because a lot of the students believed that it was much too intense uh, for them. Uh, but I didn't want it cut down. I was old already, 40 years old when I got saved. And um, um, I, I was in a hurry. I wanted to go out. I knew I was called to be a pastor. So let me answer your question sort of in the order. How did I know the Lord called me to be a pastor? Um, I was six months old in the Lord, uh, Anonymous, when I knew God called me to be a pastor. Uh, by that time, I'd started reading the Word, and I was excited about it. Uh, my my life transformed uh, radically and, and almost instantly. I was so grateful that I was going to heaven. 
And I remember one day uh, I was in a car. I was stuck on the 55 freeway. I'm sorry, the 57 freeway um, in Southern California, coming back from the place that I was working, uh, coming home. It was a 39-mile drive, but the traffic is so bad out there. Sometimes that that 39-mile trip could could be a three-hour drive. And uh, I had K-Wave radio on, 107.9 in Southern California. It's actually the Calvary Chapel uh, station. And uh, a man who is now my friend, Raul Reese, uh, who is on this station, um, um, he was on the, the air with his teaching program, and he was teaching out of First Timothy, and um, he opened up with, turn in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 3, and, and uh, I, I used to giggle at Raul, and uh, he was talking about being a pastor. And it was so serious. I'm in the car all by myself. And it was as though, I don't think, I don't want you to think anything weird here, but it was as though Jesus was in the passenger seat there with me. And here's what the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, pay attention because I've called you to do this. And I listened to Rawls' study and, and, and I just knew and I was so certain now I was also excited. Now I never wasn't I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't really understand what the role of a pastor was. I'd been watching pastors on TV and I'd been watching pastors when I went to church, but I really didn't understand what the role of a pastor was. And I called my wife, and Paula said to me, "I said, Paula, I think, I think God just called me to be a pastor." And she, you know, Paula cries pretty easily, and she said, "Call your sister, Christy." So I said, well, okay. So I hung up. I had a car phone back then. That's a long time ago, not cell phones. And I called uh, my sister, Christy. And I said, Paula told me to call you. Uh, I think I've been called to be a pastor. And and my sister started crying. And she told me uh, something the Lord had told her even before I was saved. That Ronnie, that's what she called me, Ronnie would be a pastor. So keep praying for him. Ronnie will be a pastor. And I just knew it. And um, anonymous, I've never had a moment's doubt about it. Now, I didn't go to college. Um, I, I didn't pursue a bachelor's degree or a doctorate degree or a master's degree in, in religion at all. Um, I just devoured my Bible. I studied it and studied it and studied it. Actually, when I went to Bible college, uh, I did less studying in Bible college than I did before I got there. That's how intense it was for me. And um, uh, I just knew. Um, March 4th, 1994, I was on a mountain in the Lake Arrowhead area of Southern California at the Bible College. I just went out to take a walk with the Lord. And the Lord spoke so clearly to my heart. He said, begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. And it was so profound that I went right home and I wrote it in my Bible. I've still got that Bible. I'll never get rid of it. Um, March 4th, 1994, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. And I began praying right then and there. A couple of weeks goes by. It hadn't occurred to me to ask him why. Uh, I hadn't thought initially that, well, I was going to go to San Antonio. We'd never been to Texas and didn't ever want to come to Texas. Didn't know anybody in Texas. Um, but uh, he put on my heart, say, aren't you going to ask me why? And I said, okay, Lord, why am I praying for the people in San Antonio? And he spoke again very clearly to my heart. He said, that's where I'll be waiting for you. So I knew, and there was no doubt, as soon as I graduated from Bible college, I mean, the minute I graduated, we had already made all the plans that we needed to get to Texas, and we got to Texas and just started teaching Bible studies. Now, with regard to your comment about there are many pastors um, who, who aren't called, uh, I think that's the case uh, in a lot of denominations. I've talked to a lot of pastors over the years, and, and uh, back in my early days here, I would say, well, so tell me about your call. And they say, well, I would call. I just, this was a good career. And, and I've known a lot of pastors uh, anonymous who are not filled with the Spirit, who are not born again. And you're right, they should never be a pastor. And in some of those uh, cases, they get paid pretty well to be a pastor. So uh, if that's what you mean by uh, many of them do well, uh, you're absolutely right. It is, it is a job for some. But being a pastor cannot be a job. It simply cannot be a job. It's got to be a calling. It's got to be 
a, a love affair that you have. You've got to love the people who God died for. You've got to love them, and you've got to be patient with them. You can't get angry or frustrated or uh, raise your voice at them. You've got to love them because you're representing Jesus or misrepresenting him, uh, whatever the case might be. Um, but, but I wouldn't have lasted here six months if I didn't know for sure that we were called to be here. And now I'm looking back at 26 and a half years or so, and I'm thinking uh, this has been the best life imaginable. I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, it's it's not about getting paid. I actually don't take very much money at all uh, out of the church. Um, it, it's just it's just the love of my life. And now as I'm getting to the end, however long that will be, um, I look back and I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude overwhelmed with gratitude that God would consider me for doing something like this and the people that we've been able to meet and the, the lives that we've seen changed uh, to, 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 to be in the best seat in the house to watch the word of God change people's lives forever. That anonymous. I just can't imagine anything better that could have happened to me than to have been called. Regarding your last question, is Bible college advantageous for a new pastor? Uh, that depends on you. I, I, probably not. Um, um, seminaries and, and Bible colleges, um, I think you have to be really careful, really discerning in choosing one if that's the way you're led. But ask the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's done pretty well with me without a, a seminary degree and without... Um, um, uh, an advanced education degree. Um, the Word, it's the Word. Study the Word over and over and over and over. Don't worry about your qualifications. If you've been called by God, it's His responsibility to qualify you. And I know a lot of pastors who, because of ego, they wanted to be called reverend. They pursued higher education and uh, it didn't do anything at all for their ministry. So, Anonymous, thanks for the call. I heard the question. I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, very, very important. James says, well, here, I'm going to do another question first. James is a little long. I think we're inside about three minutes now for the program. At, at, at least for this half of the program. Here's a question from Leonard. He says, Pastor Ron, do you have an opinion about Mike Fabares? Um, Leonard, you know, he's just fairly new on San Antonio radio. And I didn't know much at all about Mike. And I, I can say, because we're in the car a lot, or uh, I actually listen to the radio to get to sleep uh, with an earplug in. So I've actually heard uh, Pastor Mike teach probably a couple dozen times. Uh, and I enjoy him. Now, I haven't done a deep dive. I don't know whether he's a Calvinist. I don't know um, what his position on the rapture of the church is uh, or, or eschatology. Uh, I haven't done that. But, but I have really and truly enjoyed uh, his teaching. And uh, I haven't heard anything that, that even hinted at uh, a problem doctrinally um, uh, at all. He makes sense. He seems to truly be gifted. Um, there's not a lot of flash and a lot of show. That appeals to me. Uh, he's not trying to whip up people into a frenzy. Uh, it seems like he's really serious, Leonard, about wanting to teach people the Word. And it seems as though he loves the Word. And it seems as though he has great faith to trust that, that God is going to accomplish through his Word whatever it is that God has called him to do. So uh, at this point, I, I have nothing but um, um, commendation. Uh, I, I think it'd be great um, to, to uh, listen to him a little bit more. I wish I had more time, uh, but you probably do. So go to his website, and I think you will enjoy um, what he's done. So good stuff. C.W. says, in Genesis 19, why does Lot offer his daughters to the men in the town instead of defending them? Um, C.W. Lot uh, was one of those guys who, who 
you know, when in Rome do what the Romans do, when in Sodom and Gomorrah do what the Sodomites do. And um, Lot's perspective was just all flesh and all earthly. Uh, He offers his daughter because in that culture, hospitality and your reputation for being hospitable meant more even than protecting your own families. And so Lot, to to protect the strangers from being raped by the the people in the city, uh, he offered his daughters. God protected them, but he offered his daughters. And and I think the sad thing, the real tragic thing, C.W., is that we also know what happened after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and, and Lot's daughters um, made him drunk and unaware. They slept with him. They knew it, but he didn't. And uh, they wanted to have children produce. Um, the, the Carnal people have carnal kids. And I think that's exactly what happened in Genesis 19. Uh, that is not a commendation of his decision or his action. It was horrible and sinful. Thank you, CW. We've got 30 minutes left in our program today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. Let's go to line one and talk with Matthew. Matthew, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Ron. I had a question. I was actually listening to radio station earlier. It prompted me to ask this question. You're talking about qualifications or, you know, going to school. And, you know, obviously you had a great testimony on when the Lord called you, you know, on the highway. But I was also going to ask you uh, on First Timothy 3, 4, it says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And then he must do it in a manner worthy of full respect. So if you have children that are not actually, you know, giving you respect, you have rebellious children, you know, you train them up in the way to the Lord, but they, you know, maybe as a teenager or preteen, they're not doing well at home. Does that disqualify the pastor? Does that pastor may need to step down? Or how do you, how would you be able to respond to, you know, to your pastor if, if something like that's going on in the family? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one, Matthew. And I've, I've actually dealt with many pastors over the years uh, over the same situation. And I think the idea there is control. Uh, how how can, if he can't control his own house, how can a pastor be expected to control the church of God? There needs to be order. And Jesus needs to be exalted. And I think in, in many cases, uh, we see pastors who get so busy, um, they, they've really sort of abandoned their, their families, um, doing a good work, but they've abandoned their families, and their families sometimes spend out of control. Now, one thing I want to make clear, Matthew, is that we can't make any of our kids believe. But here's what we do. As a pastor, we have to have our household under the control of the Holy Spirit. And by that, I mean, if they are not saved, if they haven't given their life to Jesus Christ, then it's still our responsibility to discipline them. It's our responsibility to to, to uh, sit down and share the word with them. Um, to do family devotions, all those things. Um, But when a pastor's family is out of control, uh, then he is literally disqualified from being a pastor in God's church. It's just one family or another. If you're not faithful in the smaller family, the one that's closer to your heart and to your home, then you're not going to be faithful in the bigger family. And what I've found is a lot of pastors whose families are spinning out of control They're also pastoring churches that are spinning out of control. So this isn't a command that says, okay, the pastor has to have saved kids. Um, As as our kids grow up, they've got to be weaned off mom and dad's faith, and and they've got to have a faith of their own, and many reject Jesus Christ. And what I tell the pastors all the time is, if your kids don't follow Jesus, just make sure it's not your fault. 
be a, a, a loving father, be a loving husband, make sure your kids know that, that you adore their mother, uh, be consistent in the word. Uh, what you preach on Sundays, make sure you're living the rest of the week at home so your kids aren't embittered or exasperated uh, by the fact that, that that you're not the same in private as you are in public. So I, I just think it's one of those things that it's more about control. Um, if your children are messing up, they need to be disciplined. And we, we remember we're uh, representing God in our home or representing Jesus Christ and he's got to be the Lord of our homes and uh, I think too often pastors sort of take their hands off of the situation home uh, too often they leave the discipline of the children and the education uh, the, the biblical education uh, to the children to the wives and that's simply not something that that they should do so it, it's a tough one because uh, like I said you know if your kid does and does something wrong well, then you have to make the decision biblically. You have to make a decision that's consistent with what the Lord would have you do. And then it's not your fault. Your hands are clean. Uh, but when you're allowing your children to be out of control, then the truth is you are disqualified from being a pastor in a church. And I would bet, Matthew, that there are very few churches that ever deal with pastor's kids. I think sometimes in churches, the pastor's kids are given special treatment. Um, they're allowed to do things and get away with things that others can't. And that should just never happen. Let me tell you a quick story. I don't have anybody holding on the line. Uh, I have a friend, a good friend who pastors a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, Paul and I were out there visiting them. I was going to speak at the church the next day. And he was talking to me about all the problems he had with his son. He had a son who was trying to divide the church, a son who was was uh, never faithful to finish anything that he started, uh, and he was just causing all kinds of problems. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, Ron, what are you going to do? You can't fire family. And I remember looking him in the eye and said, you have to. You have to fire family because you're misrepresenting Jesus and make no mistake, there's a whole bunch of people in your church who are resentful of the fact that you treat your son different than what you preach to them about the way they should live their lives. So, Matthew, thank you. I hope that helps. Here is a question from, this is the one I was didn't think I had time to get to. It's from James. He says, Pastor Ron, I'm divorced and my ex lives with her parents and my son. They are Mormons and want to take my son to a Mormon church. How can I deal with this? When I read this question, James, my very first thought was, this is the kind of pain and confusion that um, um, happens with unequally yoked relationships. That's why God says, don't marry an unbeliever. There's nothing but pain, and this is just part of the pain. And uh, Mormonism is a cult, um, um, and there's just no way I would I would allow my son to go to a Mormon church. And I realize I don't know what your your divorce decree says. I don't know who has primary custody, but I would move heaven and earth if possible to make sure that my son would never set foot in a Mormon church. And all you can do, if she has full custody, all you can do is take every opportunity you can with your son when you're with him to share with him the real Jesus. Don't badmouth the Mormon church. You can tell them they're wrong, but 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 don't insult them. Uh, don't don't badmouth your your ex. But just show your son what a real godly father is like, and then tell him you learned that from Jesus, from following the example of Jesus. But I would do anything and everything I could legally to make sure that my child was not walking in to a Mormon church. So that's the best I can do without more detail, James. Um, just pray for your ex and pray for her parents. Richard says, My question is about the eternal subjugation of Jesus to the Father. If they're equal in heaven, how can this be true? Uh, Richard, I just dealt with this, not this Sunday or the Sunday before, but three weeks ago. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, uh, it's also taught in John chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus has made himself 
willingly, voluntarily, Jesus has made himself subject to the authority of his Father in heaven. That was the the example that he set for us. Um, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of the wife. Uh, and, and Jesus, in order to establish that priority for us, he had to live it. And so when Jesus was born, when he took on flesh in the incarnation, Jesus, from that po- moment forward, was forever subject to the authority of his Father. Now, that's not a problem because there's no tension or competition between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But but Jesus then and now does what he sees his Father do. Now, I love this, Richard, because when... when uh, the Father is in complete authority. What did he do with that authority? He handed it over to his Son. All authority has been given to me by Father in heaven. So that's what he did with it. That's, that's the idea uh, of, of, of how the, Spirit, the, the Trinity works. And, um, but, but you're right. Jesus will always be subject to the authority of his Father in heaven. Again, that will never cause conflict. Because um, they're one heart, one mind. Um, uh, God is one, uh, manifest in three persons. But uh, the eternal subjugation of Jesus to the Father is doctrinally true. It is a fact. Now, let me say one thing about this, Richard. There are today a, a lot of people, particularly women, who are pushing to get this doctrine thrown out. Um, no, Jesus was only subject to the Father when he was here, Philippians chapter 2. And while that's true, he was subject to the Father then. That never ended. Again, First Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, John 14, 28 couldn't be more clear. But the reason they want to do that is because they want to believe that the church needs to be set up in an egalitarian manner rather than complementary complementarian manner. And all that means is that that women believe that Jesus is no longer subject to the Father, so women should no longer be subject to the leadership or to the authority of men. And um, that's why this doctrine is being questioned uh, again uh, even now. Richard, good question. Thank you very, very much. Edward says, Pastor Ron, what is meant by deconstructing one's faith? Uh, Edward, you've hit on a hot-button topic. I talked about this very briefly uh, in uh, our pastor's discipleship class this past Saturday, um, uh, there is uh, an internet um, tidal wave. Uh, people who are saying, well, I'm deconstructing my faith. They're trying to wean themselves off of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, how silly is that? If it's the faith once for all delivered, there's no other faith, but they're trying to wean themselves off. And I'm going to be very, very blunt. As intelligent as it sounds, as experiential as it sounds. People say, well, if you're deconstructing your faith, all you're doing is is tearing it apart. What you have to do is reconstruct your faith, but you have to start on the foundation that's already been laid. And when you find somebody who says, I'm deconstructing my faith, what they're doing is they're trying to figure out a way to convince themselves that they're still going to heaven and they can have a relationship with Jesus without being obedient to him, without doing what the Bible says. So this is just a way of pretending all is well and throwing away the Bible. And you will find that these who are deconstructing their faith, they are are, are liberal or progressives, uh, in terms of the way they view the Word of God. And frankly, they don't want to stop sinning. And Jesus loves me, and I've never been closer to Jesus, so I can do what I want. Jesus understands. But Edward, anybody who's deconstructing their faith is just destroying the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's all it means. Don't be fooled by it. Uh, don't be intimidated by it. There is nothing good. There's nothing at all of value in in taking that approach. Anonymous has an interesting question. He says, what should I consider when I'm interested in a woman to make sure she is godly? Um, 
I tell the ladies here, the men here, just find somebody like Paula. <laughs> it, it was easy. Um, somebody that loves Jesus. I think that's the most important consideration. Um, find somebody who loves Jesus as much as you do. And the same thing would be true the other way around. Women, if you're looking for a man, if there's somebody interested in you, take a step back and observe his life. An anonymous, in your case, take a step back and watch them. It's one of the reasons I tell our people here all the time. There's no better place to meet somebody than the church. I mean, where else can you serve side by side with somebody? Where else can you can you listen to the way they talk and observe uh, from a short distance? You can observe the passion in their relationship or the lack of passion in their relationship with the Lord. But that's the most important consideration is does this woman love Jesus? Does she really love Jesus? And then is her life consistent with a woman who would love Jesus? I mean, if... She says she loves Jesus. You don't want to hear her cursing or or drinking or going out and partying and stuff like that. And when you are interested in somebody, you find somebody in your church. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should go to church to find somebody, but I'm suggesting very strongly that if you go to church to serve God and you do it with all of your heart, then you're probably going to find somebody. So that's what you consider. And from my perspective, Anonymous, it is the most important thing. I've had the privilege of watching uh, over more than 26 years now relationships develop in the church. Um, we've, we've got a, a, a young woman now, young, everybody's young to me, but, but a young woman who is now in a relationship with somebody who lives in another state. And it's so godly, and they're getting closer and closer together, and they love one another, and eventually, as the time is right, I'm sure God is going to bring them to the place together where they can serve the Lord together and and no longer be two, but one. So, again, I think church is the best possible place to really find out what somebody is really like. Can I also say one other thing? The best place to find somebody is not online. When I say that, people say, but I met my soulmate online. Well, you're the exception that proves the rule. But believe me, there's no faith at all in finding somebody online. It's like, okay, i got to do the work, Lord. Instead of just serving Jesus, walking with him, if you're walking with Jesus, I say just be with Jesus all the time. If you're with Jesus, you cannot miss out on the man or woman that he has for you. Just be patient, be picky, and make sure that the man or the woman that you choose really and truly loves Jesus. Good question. Jordan says, Pastor on James 4.13, does it mean that every prayer or decision should be prayed for this way? Now, let me read what James says, and we'll be able to answer. James, uh, this is 13 through 15, James chapter 4. Um, he writes, this is the Lord's half-brother. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. And then James says, why do you, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. This is the best counsel, I think, from the book of James. Uh, everything that we do, everything that we do, Jordan, needs to be bathed in prayer. Uh, as a family man, if, if you've got a wife and kids, they need to know that when the head of the house makes a decision, that it's a decision bathed in prayer. And so here's what you do. You just say, Lord, here's what the desire of my heart is. I want to do this. I'm asking you to, 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 to make it happen. Bless me. Bless my family. But Jesus, according to thy will, not my will. And if you can do that, and you're walking with Jesus, you cannot miss out on God's will. You just can't. It's impossible. Because you're always with him, and if you're with him where he is, you're right in the middle of everything. And Jordan, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've sat with people in counseling, 
who would have given anything if they could undo what they did and go back and bathe that decision in prayer. It would have saved so much pain. And as leaders of the household, men, we are the spiritual heads of our house. It's our responsibility to make sure that when we go to our wives or we go to our families and say, this is what the Lord is leading, that that's been a decision bathed in prayer. And if they see that praying is typical in your life, then they're going to have a lot of confidence. You're going to close a lot of doors for the enemy to cause problems. One other thought, James, and it doesn't have to, or Jordan rather, it doesn't have to do with James' passage of Scripture. But the other thing that we want to do as men who head our households is we want to be sure that we bring our wives into the partnership of the decision. When you think you've heard the voice of God, go to your wife and say, here's what I think the Lord is telling me. Would you pray about this so that we can be in agreement? We can be on one accord in this. And you see, when that happens, then you're, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? You're walking in the place you've already agreed. Uh, When we came to San Antonio, uh, Jordan, the Lord spoke to my heart long before he spoke to Paula's heart. And she wasn't up for going. And and here's what I said. I said, Paula, we're not going anywhere until we're in full agreement. So you pray. And she sought the Lord. And even though she didn't want to go, she got to that place where, Jesus, your will, not my will be done. And the Lord spoke to her heart. We wouldn't have lasted six months had we not had that kind of agreement when we came on. So yes, pray about things always. Good question. Five minutes. Okay, let's see what I got here. Laurel says, I am confused by the exhortation to fear the Lord. What does it mean? I'm not afraid of him. Um, Laurel, you don't have to be afraid of him. What this means is, um, uh, people say you be in awe of him or revere him. And while there's an element of truth in that, I think it's more literally be terrified not to be in God's will. We should be more concerned about what he thinks than anything else. And so my fear of the Lord keeps me walking the path that Jesus set me on. Paul says, um, um, walk worthy of the calling. Uh, I can't do that unless I fear the Lord. Now, what am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of him, for sure. He's my best friend, the lover of my soul. He is my king and my savior. But I'm afraid of missing out on something that he has for me if I decide to do things my way instead of his way. I'm afraid of what I would miss out. I'm afraid of misrepresenting him to my wife. I'm afraid of misrepresenting him to the the church that he's blessed me with. So the fear of the Lord is more a fear of not being right in the middle of his perfect will than anything else. And 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 we if we truly had a healthy and I like to use the, the the term filial fear of God, a loving healthy fear of God, we wouldn't disobey. We would not disobey. So I think that's what's meant by a fear of God. Thank you. This will be the last question of the day. What happened to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father? I was told that Jesus didn't need an earthly father because he had a heavenly father. Does this mean we don't necessarily need an earthly father because we have God? Anonymous, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, I think most people uh, have decided that that Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, um, died. Uh, You know, the average age of of a, a male in the time Jesus was here on earth, was probably 50 years old. Um, and, and in all likelihood, uh, Joseph died. Um, Jesus, who would have been uh, the, the older son, the oldest son, and who would have been expected to take over uh, the, the family business, support the family and care for them. Uh, of course, by that time, uh, he'd been set out on his own mission by his father in heaven. Um, so Joseph almost certainly died in uh, Mary that would have left Mary a widow, and uh, the sons would have uh, the sons and daughters. He had sisters as well. 
uh, would have been um, alone. They wouldn't have had an earthly father. Now, for somebody to say that that Jesus didn't need an earthly father because he had a heavenly father, um, certainly Jesus didn't need an earthly father to be born. The Holy Spirit uh, moved on Mary, and and she became pregnant um, that way. Um, but Jesus need, needed a father, an earthly father. We all do. And Joseph, by all accounts, was a, a truly godly man. Um, I always envision him as a really, really nice man. Uh, he taught Jesus the, the, the family business, carpentry. Um, he, he was active, knowing, knowing that his son was uh, the, the, the miracle son of promise. How intimidating would that be? But Joseph was there. Now, he never had to discipline Jesus. Uh, Jesus never sinned. But um, Joseph was necessary to the story and actually a hero. Um, I don't think we can appreciate how difficult it was for Joseph when Mary said, I'm pregnant, but I haven't been with anybody. Uh, None of us would believe that. Joseph, when Gabriel came to him, Joseph... um, Packed her up and said, let's go. Let's go. So, Anonymous, thank you very, very much. Tonight, our men's and women's and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. And Lord willing, tomorrow I'll be back at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening in Christ. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.